Hey, everybody. Welcome to Snark Monkey episode number 21. We're talking to Denny Tedesco about a new movie that's opening this weekend. Um, it's opening on March 13th. Depending on when you're listening to this, it'll be showing at the New Art Theater, but also uh, in Los Angeles, but will be available on demand and on iTunes. Denny is the son of Tommy Tedesco. Tommy Tedesco is a name you probably don't know, but whose music you definitely do know. In fact, Tommy and the group of musicians who are now being referred to as the Wrecking Crew, back in the 60s and the 70s, they played the music. They were the band on some of the biggest hit singles ever, songs that you know. Uh, they were the band behind Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Waters album. They were the band behind the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds album. It was pretty much Brian Wilson and these guys, and then the other Beach Boys were brought in for backing vocals at most on that record. The Righteous Brothers, they were part of Phil Spector building his wall of sound. The Birds, there's an amazing story in the film, the song Mr. Tambourine Man by The Birds, the, the band played that out on the road, but the band did not play that in the studio. It was these guys, the Wrecking Crew. So Tommy Tedesco, Carol Kay, uh, Hal Blaine, the drummer, so many great names, but a lot of names you don't know. They created some of the most signature sounds in the history of pop and rock and roll throughout the 60s and 70s. They were the band behind the Monkees. They were the band behind the Mamas and Papas. They were the Tijuana Brass before Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass went out on tour. <laughs> Great stuff. The movie is definitely worth watching if you are a music lover at all. And it's also a really touching tribute from Denny to his dad. And Denny's been working on this since 1996. And the biggest issue he's had is to try and get the money to pay for the music rights because you can't make this movie without this music. And we'll talk about that a little bit, and you'll hear about it. Uh, one thing, we kind of come in mid-conversation here. We had just a little problem with the very beginning of the interview. You only miss a few seconds of it. But we start out with Denny talking about how he started this project when his dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And that's what inspired him to document Tommy's stories, as well as the stories of the other musicians in this amazing group of Los Angeles studio musicians. It's a great story. Please see the movie. Check it out on demand on iTunes. It's called The Wrecking Crew. And take a listen to the story of both his father and the journey, the arduous path to finally get this movie out to the public. Denny Tedesco on The Wrecking Crew, episode number 21 of Snark Monkey. Enjoy. You know what I mean? I just think that word terminal just was like, you, you mean there's, you know, it was exactly what it meant. So I started that film, filming of my dad. And um, I just kept going. And the first year and a half was, you know, on and off. And, you know, got 97, he passed on, 98. Um, we started doing this 14-minute edit. And we tried, you know, every which way to show it to people. And everybody kept saying, well, you know, that's great, but no one's going to ever come to 
help us or help you. They basically said this is interesting, but nobody's going to give you money for this. Yeah, because they said you have too much music in this. To make this film work, oh. you have to have music. Yeah. And, you know, and at that point, we only, at 14 minutes, we had 50, 50 little clips yeah. to get across. Um, <laughs> so it was like that was not going to happen, so we just had to keep going. You know, 2000 came around, and I just would interview, you know, talk about the project a lot, you know, and try to interview as I got along, you know, uh, Glenn Campbell, I got Glenn, and then I got Brian Wilson, and I got Herb Albert, Lou Adler, uh, Jimmy Webb. You know, it's when I, sometimes it was like I was nervous, didn't want, you know, then finally get the guts to uh, try to get someone. You know, it took a long time. Yeah. yeah. But so obviously this was something, I want to talk about, I mean, your story really is, how much you have been putting into trying to get this thing done it is um i you probably had no idea what a what undertaking a hurdle, what a, no yeah, yeah how, how many hurdles you would have so and but yeah because you tell the story of your dad and uh that remarkable group in the film and i want people to see the film but let's just do a little background, background on you. yeah where'd you grow up well i grew up in the valley in yeah. northridge so and, you were here all your life yeah my dad and mom came out to california in 1953 I'm born in 1961, right? And um, and you know, I only knew you know what Valley life in Northridge. You yeah. know, I went to school Notre Dame High School, and and Dad just went to work like any other dad. I just didn't know any different. Yeah. My son went to Notre Dame. So, Did he? Yeah. Wow. Does he know the building that's named after me there? Probably not. What is it? It's Would not. You... <laughs> <laughs> I like to tell everybody. I, uh, no, no, it's not there. I think we, we just all, in case. We all, paid, we all paid enough money to that place that there should be something um, named after us, right? Thank God the, the school is so much better than it was when I was there. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, it's we, a great, yeah, it's, it's a, a great, great high school. school. Yeah. Um, so you lived here in the valley. At what point did you recognize that your dad must have been? playing guitar around the house and no stuff, right no no, no. dad i you know i never saw dad play guitar really i, didn't see, I not like even I said, just for fun or no, parties never, or no, anything nothing dad went to work when he came home um i never saw him pick out a guitar until the 70s late 70s because then he started doing his jazz thing right but dad went to work don't forget he's going 12 hours 14 hours a day so if he's left at eight in the morning to go do a call let's say universal studios and he's got to go do something at capital later maybe gold star later he's gone 12 14 hours a day yeah. he's not coming home to practice he doesn't need to yeah because he's playing all, he's all the day time. yeah and and that was the one thing that was different from him versus let's say a don randy you know don randy the piano player right. don was always playing in the clubs as well, and then he was uh, he was saying the other night he, he spent uh, when he finally had to quit the club Sherry's because he spent like sixty nine hundred dollars on you know uh, replacement piano players. <laughs> you know, he thought this is stupid. You know. Um, so when were you aware that your dad was making a living playing? Well, guitar? I always know what he did. Yeah, but it didn't. You know, but if you don't know any differently. It wasn't like I was hanging out with a bunch of musician kids. No. You know. Or, because, I mean, you were saying, not only was he, I mean, he was just gone a lot. So you, yeah, you, you dad, only saw him in kind of, you know, brief glimpses. Yeah. Like most, like you know, dads, family. I guess. Yeah. yeah. So he was, if, to him, and it was, this was clear with all the the people you interviewed that, um, because they were taking as much work as they could get, and then yeah. they were also in demand at the same time, yeah. that they treated it very much like a like a blue collar job. It like, is. It was. Like a blue, it was. Yeah. It was hard work and it was long hours. Yeah. And it was 
uh, a a craft as opposed to an art, despite the fact that these amazing things came out of what they contributed. Right, and it's funny. I think the here's you said two things: craft and art. And it's interesting because my father said, "Listen, you got the music and you got music business. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they mix." Yeah. You know, it's how you mix the two, you know, to make, you know, the product sometimes, you know, he could, if he wanted to do his own album that, Hey, that's music, you know, right? Yeah. that's what I want to do. But if I'm, you're, you're paying for me to do something on an album, I play what you want me to play. Yeah. You're a hired gun. I'm a hired gun, if, but I might think you're wrong, but it's not <laughs> up to me to say, I think you're an idiot. You know, yeah. you got to play what he, he, what you're given. You know, what's so fun about the movie is that you, you get to kind of relive a lot of those moments where there were some pretty memorable music made yeah. uh, in, in some special situations. What, um, what people probably don't realize, because you focus a lot on that, is your dad and all these guys probably played on a lot of crappy stuff, too, oh, yeah. that nobody ever wanted to hear again. No. And that's so what, that's so they, they weren't even probably conscious of, no. uh, until they heard on the radio, this random song they had worked on was like a big top 40 that's hit. That's it. You said it, because don't forget... As, well, first of all, my father said, when they asked, should he have been paid more money, he said, no. He says, I got paid very well. He says, you know, I made hundreds of hits, but I made thousands of bombs. Yeah, yeah. And I never gave anybody their money back. <laughs> so, you know, so he had a really, you know, good sense of it. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't know. You're not recording hits. You're recording songs. He didn't know he was on hits until sometimes many, many years later because it was just tracks to him. Yeah. You know, you're going from one, two, three dates a day. And you're playing three or four songs in those recording dates. Let's say during the morning, then you do another three later in the afternoon, another three later. You're not. It's not there in your head. Yeah. And he's probably not popping on top forty radio after a not long at day all. at work. He at could all. care that's less funny. about no, that. That's, he didn't know what was going on because <laughs> so he didn't want to. I would imagine it's probably some know. random. You know, he's sitting up watching some random variety show at home or something. Right. It's like there's somebody doing one of the songs he played on. Yeah. Or you know what? It was the. One was up, up, and away was a good one that he... Fifth Dimension. Fifth yeah. Dimension. He didn't know he had done it. And the only reason he knew was when... Um, uh, oh, Jimmy Webb, the writer, obviously, he gave the guys a little Grammy charm for bracelets and stuff, and it was like a thank you gift. And he, he said to Hal, what was this for? He says, that was that thing we did last year with the Fifth Dimension. You know, that won the, you know, the Grammy this year. Oh, all right. Now, what's interesting is I listened, I, I listened to this song, and it's my father. There's a certain thing my father did was that he was great at the gut string, the classical guitar, playing that pretty, you know, Latin stuff. So I hear it all the time. I know that's him. If it's electric, I might not know it's him. Yeah. It could be anybody. But You picked it right but, up. But he just... Uh, but so he didn't listen to radio. Yeah. So at what point did you realize that he was involved with music that was that was being heard? I mean, probably, you know, what probably was I realized is probably when I'm about 10, 11. Yeah. And that's when someone says, hey, your dad's on the Partridge Family album. <laughs> OK. <laughs> <laughs> then it became something. Beach Boys, forget it. I don't yeah. care. Yeah. You know, there's a difference between it's funny. It's like people always say. About this film, every song is a bookmark in someone's life. Well, me being born in 61 and my brother's born in 51, there's a big different gap there. Yeah. So that bookmark in my life for me at 10 is going to be 
like I said, it's going to be a Partridge Family, maybe. For him, it could have been a Beach Boys song. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was a difference of uh, what, what hit you at this, that time. So what did your mom do? Mom was mom. Mom? She was a homemaker? Mom, yeah. She was. Uh, she took care of uh, everything. It's funny because, um, you know, when they, where they were from, they were from Niagara Falls, New York. You know, poor Italian, you know, kids. They didn't, you know, they didn't know anything. They were so not savvy to the world. 1953, dad's working at a chemical factory in Niagara Falls, you know, and they went to a dance at Niagara University. They were invited to this dance. And there was a big band that was going through there. It was called the Ralph Martieri Big Band. And at the time, they had a hit on, uh, with Carnival, uh, the, the Caravan, sorry, Caravan. And um, it was a lead guitar piece. And they said, hey, the guitar player is leaving. And someone said, well, my friend has, he plays guitar. Well, let's see if he wants to try out later that night. So he said, okay. So he gets my dad to try out, and he gets the job, goes on the road. You know, this is 1953 now. They go for a couple months around the country. They get to Dallas. Well, first of all, no, they get to Hollywood. Now they're on the Ho Hoagie Carmichael show. My father's meeting other musicians that are making a living. You know, what do you do? Oh, I work in the studios. What's that? Da-da-da-da. So then they keep going, and they get to Dallas. Dad gets fired with... The um, the singer because they they found a guy that could do both, you know, <laughs> just like any other business. There you go, not consolidate, consolidate. It's, Let's it's get, always happening. If it's not in radio and TV, it's <laughs> the band. <laughs> so my dad's so ashamed. I mean, he really is like you know he's twenty three at this point. He's going back to Niagara Falls a loser. You know now there's people in Niagara Falls at that point that said he'll never make it. Like really nice. So there's already the, your friends are rooting for you. You know, not oh, really. You know, what wow. I mean? so you get that kind of weird thing. Yeah. So he tells my mom, says, "We're gonna go. To, let's go move to Los Angeles. There's work out there." So, so that's what happened. But then I asked my mom recently two things. I said, "How long were you in a, you know home before you moved to Los Angeles? Like was it six months, a year?" She said, no, it was three weeks. She says, we hadn't even paid off the wedding furniture yet that we got. She says, we sold it to get across country, and then, you know, which is illegal, you know, probably paying that off. And then, and then I asked, and she says, dad almost didn't go to that dance. Oh, that was the thing. As I asked her, I said, was dad working a lot as a musician in 1953? She said, no, there's no work for a musician. You go to parties, there's maybe a job or yeah. maybe a, a wedding at the time. Yeah, local dances local or dance, something. Yeah, there's nothing yeah. really. It's, you know, again, small town America. Right. She says he almost didn't go to the dance because he got a gig in Pennsylvania with his trio. You know, and he didn't want to go to this dance. He hated that. And she said, you got to go because I paid $35 for this dress. <laughs> So that $35 dress changed my life, yeah. their lives, and music, when you think about it. How remarkable is it that those two stayed together as long as they did? Very been? remarkable. Because, I mean, <laughs> if if you look at some of the other, even, yeah. you know, Hal Blaine in particular mentions this yeah, in said, some of the footage. Uh, I said, yeah, that was the question I had for everybody. How did it affect your personal life? Sure. And Hal said, well, I had six wives, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I mean, your wife, uh, your wife, your mom... Must have had an, you know what an it was? immediate understanding it of was. what his life was going to be. It was a, it was a, um, there was something about them, and I, and I think I, you know, I'm just crossing my mind now as what I'm about to tell you. It was a work ethic. Both they, both families had. 
my mom, when she was a kid, she worked in my grandfather's garage. You know, she was a little girl pumping gas, you know, 1930s. You know what I mean? Or, you know, jump, you know, driving a truck in 1950s to, you know, Rochester to dump a truck or something. Right. Do you know what I mean? She was a little tomboy there. So I think there was just something about you did this for your family. There wasn't a question mark about it. When what mom was doing was when dad was, mom was working, when she, when they got here, mom was working at Lockheed. My dad worked, I think, somewhere else as well. Then dad got, finally, he got busy enough in guitar. And then finally mom stayed home. When she had, I think when I was born, and then she stayed home for the rest of the time. But what she was doing, though, was booking dad, meaning like you got your jobs by people would call the house. Are you available? Blah, blah, blah. And she would say yes or no, and she would write it down and, you know, book it. So this is way before we didn't have, you know, yeah, cell no phones, way. nothing. Yeah, so she was his messaging service. Innocent was, yeah. yeah, and then they had and a messaging. Him, uh, yeah. you know, they had an answering service. Yeah. What, Again, this is all work ethic right. at this point. These people, all these musicians are kids coming out of World War II. You know, some are poor. You know, most of them are poor, you know, kids. Um, you know, so they're starting this work. And they're, and dad is very lucky at this point. Oh, my God, I'm making money playing guitar. Yeah. That's something that was not going to happen. That w- was, was it a goal for him? Did no. He, no, he just... It, no, no, it, no, no. He, that it was, it really, fell into yeah. place because... He it just was, thought he was going to be working at a, at a factory or an aerospace was, or whatever. Play guitar available. on the weekend. Yeah. There was, you know, and, you know, that was... I, the only reason I think he went to uh, Hollywood and not New York is I think he just liked the warm, yeah. you know... Well, he was in freaking Niagara yeah, Falls. Exactly. Why <laughs> would go? So, so the so your parents, your mom. I mean, he wasn't like some big celebrity. I mean, that kind no. of that plays into it too. It wasn't like he was famous. It wasn't like he had groupies. That no. you know, and you like you say, it was a work ethic. This was his, you know, grab his lunch pail and his guitar, yeah. go off to work and work really hard. I was shocked at the kind of hours these guys put in yeah and that's the thing is uh, and jumping jumping all over town right at all hours of the day and night and you know you look at if you take the center of let's say of all this happening say sunset and vine you got rca over here you got gold star at santa monica and vine you got capital records up on vine you got on santa monica um or sunset you had united western there were all these studios within a mile or two so you could get from within 10 minutes to the next call. So they would call at 8, and each recording date was three hours. So you could go from 8 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock, and they, I think they could hold you for an hour for overtime. So you had to hopefully that, that you know, if you're going to take the next call at 12, you better hope the guy you got to get out. <laughs> and, um, and they all were pretty cool about it. They yeah. all knew what was going on. It was union. So most of the stuff was the union. Yeah. So, so they were guaranteed a pretty good wage. Pretty and, good wage, yeah. And but, it was really up to them. I mean, like the three-hour thing, that's probably a union thing. You can't That work. was a union thing. Yeah. What, the, that was, what they were doing there was union. Glenn Campbell told me what it was. He said, you know, you were allowed to do, I think, three or four songs in three hours. And the reason was they didn't want you doing any more. It was like factory work. You don't want to knock out a car within a day. Right. You know, you want to space that thing out. <laughs> so you don't want to knock out an album in three hours, which you could, you know, because <laughs> you're killing yourselves. Yeah, well, that's, and that's also one of the downsides of the, these guys being so good and so tight is that they probably could have squeezed in more in, well, in one session. They, But the thing is... He, 
I'm glad they didn't, because not just because financially, it did, you know, listen, you're always better to take your time to do that one, sure, two songs. Sure, But they were so good. But Glenn Campbell said it was like perfect. He said, I was playing with Michael Jordan in that room. Everybody in the room was a Michael Jordan. If you couldn't play or keep up, forget it. You're killing us because the next gig at 12 o'clock, we can't miss that next gig. So we're waiting on this guy. We're going to die here. So there's some pressure there, too, for those people. Oh, yeah. You really have to step up because everybody else in the room is at the top of the game. And they're also expecting you. That's why it's very hard to break in. Yeah. You know, they call it the red light syndrome. Yeah, you could play your ass off, you know, in a recording or anywhere. All of a sudden, that red light turns on. It's like now you got music in front of you, especially in movies. Now you got music in front of you, and your part doesn't come in, your solo doesn't come in until bar 84, and you got an orchestra there, and you're sitting there counting till 84. <laughs> and then you got to play beautifully. That was what my father had going for him. That's great. It's a whole different kind of musicianship that, that a typical, yeah, and, you know, like you say, uh, somebody who just practices and then plays on the weekend or somebody who is thinking from the standpoint of an artist of, you know, I'm just going to go out and tour and that sort of thing. It's a different mindset. It's a totally different mindset. And the other thing was what in the early days why these guys were so in demand you were talking about is because there was only one track in the, you know, it was mono. Right. right. So you couldn't punch in, you know, like edit really easily. You had to cut tape. Or you had to do this, but it was hard to, it was easier just to redo the whole track. Yeah, you're not doing individual parts on individual tracks. This is an era where technology was getting better bit by bit, but it was still at best four track recording. Right, and then they had two tracks, four tracks, eight tracks, and they said, what are we going to do with all these tracks? (laughs) That was the funniest thing was you hear this, what were we going to do with eight tracks? That's crazy, Tom. Now there's nothing. No, you can literally, it's it's infinity tracks now. It's crazy. I, I think that's, and I think that's what the problem now is, and we talk about this in the movie a little, and you talk to musicians of today, they talk about it. The problem today versus those days, and I, we're not talking about that long ago, musicians had to be in a room together. Mm-hmm. There was a benefit of being in a room together because you played off each other, you right. listened to each other. That's where the magic happened. And I mean, it, almost every yeah. great story that's in the movie about these signature bass lines or these signature solos or whatever are almost all accidents or can we try this or some one player says is having trouble with it and the other one says well what if we did something i mean it's almost all that it's and And those those are the signature moments of those songs and that's the thing that doesn't happen now if you're not a musician you know you if you're a musician you understand that now is when they lay the drum track the bass track and everybody keeps piling on the producers layering it mm-hmm. you know he's in control well you can't the drummer can't you know turn the corner right, here right right because he's already laid down something. yeah you're locked into what that yeah. guy did and yeah. you're just having to hear it i think it's interesting that's a different perspective on guys like well there's some bands like dave grohl and the food right. fighters and remember and he made a big point of it yeah. when they got the the Grammy, I think it was. Right. He said, I want everybody to know we were in the room together yeah. when we did this, which is great. It was less, you know, recording analog on tape was less about, you know, whatever sound, whatever warm sound or whatever you want to say. It was more about 
forcing everybody to play together yeah. in, in one room. And that's interesting. Now, so while all this is going on through the 60s and into the 70s, you're growing up, you're yeah. in the Valley, you're going to school. Did you start to have some musical inclination at this point? Yeah. I mean, I always had inclination. Yeah. When did, you, did you When did you kind of pick up on stuff? Did oh, they well, have you, now, did, hey, here's the thing. You say inclination or pick up on stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, were you, were you having to, did they make uh, you take piano we, lessons? I think, you know, usual ma- kids stuff? Yeah, yeah. We took yeah. piano for a little while. Quit that. Uh, took guitar. Quit that. This is you and your. How many siblings? Uh, uh, it was well, three young ones and yeah. an older one. My older brother actually played piano and got into bands when he was in high school. So he was the only. And my, you know, he was the only one that actually did something with bands. And right. then my younger brother Damon Tedesco is uh, sound engineer and records orchestras. Yeah. So he actually. But you guys gravitated it. to it. It was in yeah, the DNA a little bit. But. You know, to go back to me though, the saxophone was one of the instruments I quit. But that <laughs> one was one of the instruments you quit. Instruments, How long is the list, Denny? It gets bigger. <laughs> it ended with accordion. Accordion. <laughs> that, but I wanted to do accordion. When, at what uh, point did you think that you were going to get chicks with an accordion? That why it was my mom. <laughs> That's funny you said that. <laughs> Every Christmas, uh, you got to realize, every Christmas, my father and we would, my mom would pull out this accordion. She remembered one part, like maybe eight bars of this Tarantella, you know, and she would, you know, whatever it was. And I thought, God, I'm going to take that thing. I'm going to learn that thing because I figured I could learn just enough to pretend like to get it across. Yeah. So I called Frank Morocco, the great accordion player of all time in L.A., and I don't tell him it was me. I said, hey, Frank, um... You know, a friend of mine wants to do accordion lessons. Can you recommend someone? He says, yeah, there's someone down in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, I said, okay. So I go down there, and it's like this. She's got this thing, like, just like it's a compound. Barbed wire around her studio. It's like, oh, my what? God. I, she was nuts. <laughs> so I go in, and it's a big space. It's like a garage, but it's a big space. And it's she's got all the great pictures of all the great accordion players around the room. It's like this temple of accordion. <laughs> so I sit down, and I open this accordion up. And she starts going after me. She goes, oh, and she's disgusted by how much dust on this thing. And da, da, da. she says, people throw up on these beautiful instruments. I'm like, wait a minute. It's been 1932. This thing has been around. <laughs> no one's thrown up on it. I promise you. So she's made me nervous. <laughs> oh so she's, So now she's going, it's like this Midwestern lady, you know, the polka queen or something. So she says, do you read music? I said, well, I could read. You know, this I could read. You know, the C, the D. I could do that. Right. I Start and she goes and she starts counting one and two and so on. And now I'm rushing because I'm so. And she, now she gets up, now she's upset with me and she starts hitting me in the arm. No, count like this one. And I'm thinking, she's hitting me, she's touching me. I'm an adult, I don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> so, this is like resetting the movie Whiplash with accordions. It's hilarious. It's right. That's a great idea. Shh. Turn it. Erase this tape. We're redoing it. Okay. That is a funny oh, idea. That's a brilliant idea. That is a brilliant idea. So did but you this... ever get any further with that? No. And no. the only reason I wanted to do it was, after I quit that, was I wanted to just surprise my parents at Christmas time. Yeah. Just yeah. say, Mom, just give it to me. Let me see if I could do it and just finish it. But I never got there. Oh, the, the what sax, a good son, uh, by yeah, the way. Yeah. The, <laughs> the sax, though, was at Notre Dame High School. It was again in the 70s, and I was typing class. I had to get out. Because it was another, you know what it is? I don't like authority touching me. Yeah. And this brother, Ricardo. Not many people do, by the no, way. No, I but guess th- not. Sometimes they just put up with it. 
Uh, Were you a troublemaker? Was no. There, no. All I was doing was looking. You feel, you know, it was those days with typewriters that you know they were manual. Yeah. And you had to listen to marching music. And you had to look at the. Oh, oh you could God. never look at the keys. If you looked at the keys, you, he came around with the ruler and smacked him. Oh, wow. So after half a semester, I thought I want to type now. I don't want to be here anymore. And I went to the dean and said, "Can I get out of this? I really want to be in the band." Blah 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 blah. Dad's a musician. I tried to, you know, did the whole thing. He said, "All right, fine." And they. Gave me, went to band, they gave me a saxophone, but I was the banner carrier in the end. I never played. <laughs> but I was the best banner carrier. Yes, you were. Uh, you guys sound like a tight family. I mean, when you did get the chance to hang together, I mean, yeah, not I mean, a lot of drama. I mean, was oh, it? there's always drama in families. But yeah, yeah, but any family. But yeah. it sounded like you guys really... We, we, we loved each other. Yeah. And, and that was the thing about my father. I mean, you know, we always talk about it, you know... Dad could, you know, he could push a button and I could push his. Yeah. You know, and that's the hardest thing about, you know, and I look, I see it now in my life where I'm doing it to my kids and yeah. they're doing it to me, you know. But I always remember when he got sick and it was like, you know, once he got diagnosed, it was like, you know what? No more. No more fighting. Yeah. It just stopped. Yeah. And the fight, someone asked me, I think it was Mark Marin, you know, the podcast. He said, what'd you guys fight about? I said, I don't even remember. It could have been anything. Yeah. The water was too hot. It's just father-son stuff. It didn't stuff, matter. You know? it didn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Well, also, and it's you, you know, you got if you got that Italian thing, then there's just that that yeah. level of just passion going yeah. on one way or the other. And he, it's funny because it, like music, you couldn't fight with him about music. What are you, gonna, you know? Yeah, you couldn't yeah. argue with him. So he's, you know, and he was pretty good about like he never like said to us, "What are you listening to that crap for?" He was never really? no. Was never. he interested? Did he pay yeah, attention? Yeah, 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 very much so. If you said, Dad, what do you think of this? And he'd give you honest opinions. This yeah. guy's great. He, it, well, I, this podcast, can we say anything? Like, you can say anything okay, you want. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, but like, he had, <laughs> he had, you know, if he was listening to something on the radio and he hears his guitar player, he said, Man, that guy's a bitch. And that, you know, that's a compliment. Yeah. You know, he loved guitar players when he could hear a good guitar player. Some people, you know, would try to bring it down, but he was the opposite. You go, man, that guy, he blows everybody away. Yeah. And he always had that respect for his peers. He didn't feel, he, it looks to me like uh, just, uh, you have some footage in the film of him doing some lectures and, and. Yeah, he loved know. those lectures. He was um, doing those lectures. He didn't feel, he, he really enjoyed sharing what he learned and what he knew. And he did, also, much. it didn't look like he ever felt threatened. No. Yeah. No, it's funny because when he broke into the business in the late, uh, mid fifties, no one would help him except for a guy named Bob Bain. Bob Bain was like the older statesman who's, you know, Bob just turned 90. Bob was the one that helped him. You know, so when he got to the point of helping people, he was the one that helped everybody. I mean, a lot of people he helped break in. And um, and that's always been noted with a lot of guys. Um, I think the greatest thing about me on this project of 19 years are people talking about him as a person. You know, how he would do something for someone uh, I don't know if I told you that story about Chuck Rainey, the great bass player. Right. Phenomenal bass player. But records are different than TV and film. Everything is a different hierarchy in terms of musicianship, what you need to do. You know, when you get into film, there's no you there's no messing around. There's no leeway in terms of music. Usually you got to be, you know, everything's boom, 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 boom. And versus maybe a record is a little looser. So Chuck said, I got my first date. He says, movie date. And I'm there. He says, I've never met your dad. He says, orchestra's going on the first take. And he says, I lose my track. He says, the 
bass signature changes, you know, and I'm lost. He says, I just, just can't find it. And your father comes out of nowhere with a huge sound off the chord. And they look to Tom and go, hey, Tom, yeah, I'm good. Let's do it again. So they roll back the film. This is in projector days in the early 70s. So it's taking time to roll back. Let's do it again. And he starts going. The orchestra's going. And Chuck says, I'm lost again. He says, I can't make that change. And your father comes in louder. Tommy, you all right? Yeah, I just lost the pick. Let's go. No problem. And he turned to Chuck. He says, all right, you're on your own now. <laughs> You know, and the thing was, he could do that for those guys because yeah. he had been there. Yeah, and That's those were great. those were the proudest moments for me when someone tells me those stories. Yeah. You know, and I asked some of the guys. I said, you know, because he had a reputation of being the master when it came to reading guitar. And that's because he literally studied it so hard when he was in the when he moved to L.A. He would take music, flip it upside down, so he didn't memorize it. He would take trumpet books and be able to transpose all these different books, wow. different you know. So he was the king of that stuff, and everybody looked at him like he was nuts because he could do it. Um, but that's a certain level of genius. I mean, not. Well, I mean, you, you, you know what? You, it, I wonder. There's work ethic involved in that, yeah. but there's also something wired in in exactly. Tommy's brain. There was that's not like anybody and you else. Know what and it translated to something right. And he was amazing. able to do two things: is take yeah. the, the that part of the brain and put it with the pretty, you know, sensitive with part. the artful, artful. Side. Yeah. What's interesting is when and I love you know musicologists are would probably understand this, but he loved gambling. He loved numbers. Oh, wow. He loved uh, accounting. You know, those oh, were... Wow. So I think it's all those patterns he yeah. could see. Yeah. You know. No, I get that. On a Sunday, man, he knew what the spread was. You know, he knew how many touchdowns he needed or what <laughs> needed to be to make that bet. <laughs> so, so it wasn't, you know, it came in good. You That's know, great. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your path to get the movie made. Yeah. So... Um, you get your dad's diagnosis, yeah. and you guys realize there's a limited time you've got with him. Yeah. and Was this specifically to kind of document his life, and then no, it became no, the group? Or? No, no, it was always going to be the group yeah. first, and that was the funny thing, because my buddy John Leandakis and I at college at Loyola Marymount, we had done a, a short film, or a short doc, you know, 20 minutes on him uh, in college, and it was awful. It was awful. And the only thing that came out of it was him. And a couple of interviews that we did, you know, we did Henry Mancini, we did Bill Conti, Steve Lukather, um, Frank Duvall from uh, Happy Kind and Mirth Makers, and Frank Zappa. And But the f seminar footage that's in the movie is from that. That was something that was really special that we got out of it. Yeah. So when I came, I always wanted to do a thing about the group with them. So when I started that round table with my dad and all these sessions, Hal Blaine, Carol Kay, the only woman in the group on bass, and Plaz Johnson, when I put the four of them together, I kind of wanted it to be a voyeur in a sense. I yeah. wanted it to be like Broadway Danny Rose, where you kind they all talk about Woody Allen, who was Danny Rose, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. They're just all telling stories yeah. and, you know, and, and I, each other. And, right. Yeah. And that's what I grew up with because I never saw guys play. It's not like I went to nightclubs to hear these guys play. No. They didn't. They would come over to the house and just hang out. They if, would play cards. Were, yeah. <laughs> they didn't play but they music. Were, they, but they were but telling they were, stories, right? right? And that's exactly it. They yeah. were ribbing each other. Yeah. That, when they got together, it wasn't like they were like, that, 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 and they was zing, zing, zing. <laughs> and so that's kind of what I wanted to get, and I got it. Because I knew it's like, 
you know, putting four mad dogs in a, in a cage or whatever. So they're going to go nuts. Right. Or, you know, you're going to get something. What's also really fun is, and this is typical, I think, of stuff like that, is the um, the disparity sometimes in certain memories of, oh, yeah. oh, that's not how that happened. This is how that yeah. happened. Or it wasn't that many. It was, I mean, even just the number of people that are attributed to be in the Wrecking Crew yeah, was that, as, as few as well, like, that's the qu- 10 and as it, many as and, and it really does. And the thing is, the Wrecking Crew, the whole thing about the Wrecking Crew, it's not a real group. Yeah. There's not a, it's, it's really about... It's not a defined group no. of people, although there were certainly Guys consistent in, threads. that were consistent. Through, yeah. And the, what happened was, in the we should have said this at the beginning, he set it up maybe, but those guys became later known as Wrecking Crew. These were the young folk, the young... Well, they were young. There was 30, you know, 1960. But these guys are coming in where the older established players are not going to do this rock and roll stuff. A, it might have been non-union. Made have been gold, uh, they might have been doing demos, which were illegal, right. you know, which is amazing. Now they're legal. <laughs> but demos were illegal. They used to say, listen, um, who was it? Uh, Sonny Bono. That's another story. But it would be like uh, uh, one for... Uh, one for uh, 15 two for 25 you know that's how you would do it it's like all right i'll do two songs for 25 bucks you know that's how what was the non-union thing yeah well these guys would do that at the beginning and then they started becoming the guys that were doing the phil Spector stuff the brian wilson stuff right. the janet dean stuff now these guys are in demand you know the older guys weren't going to take a chance on some of this stuff because they're working at NBC or doing the movie calls. Yeah, and they're the, and they're doing the big you know big standards. Stuff at, yeah, or, exactly. Or, or Capital Sinatra Records and those guys. Right. right. They're right. not taking a chance. Right. And getting busted and you know getting not paid. Yeah. But now these guys are doing it. And then the business takes off. It becomes real business. Yeah. And so these guys are are locked in. Uh, so so you so you have the the chance to get those four all together, including yeah. your dad, and it starts that that was when did you shoot that? That was ninety six July ninety six oh. June or July ninety six. So the real formulation for what you wanted to do was going to be was basically that there. based on those four, and I was going to keep building on tables mm-hmm. like that. To I wanted to be a voyeur, you know, like I said, but you know, I was shooting film at the time, mm-hmm. so. A lot of things happen in those days with film is very difficult. You know, you got to. It's I, expensive. Expensive. For a <laughs> I got to buy film. Got to develop it. You got to, mm-hmm. you know, then transfer it to tape. Uh, what format do I do this? Do I do that? Right, and, right. and I didn't want to use the video at the time, and it just kept going on and on. And you had to have a bigger crew. You know, I'm paying. The crew was always great. They were friends and always helping me. But you still got to get guys together. Right. And this will lasted for about four years before I finally started moving over into video, and that was just. A godsend, yeah, and and it started to develop to be a little more quality, yeah, at that better point quality and more portable, yeah, exactly. And you're picking up people as they go. Now, you you must have been able to. You mentioned earlier a lot of these different guys like Herb Albert and, and well, the guys that were easy to get with the musicians, yeah, you know, you know, so Al Casey, you know, he was in Phoenix, and once I got Hal uh, Hal Glenn sorted, I said I'm going to come out to do Al Casey as well, and then I went to go see. Um, Snuff Garrett in Tucson. Mm-hmm. That was the only trip I ever made. But the other guys, you know, Earl Palmer, uh, Hal Blaine, and Carol, and everybody else that did by themselves, it was all done in L.A. Anybody just not want to talk about it? Um, yeah, there was, but not these guys. You know, I tried, I, you know, it's funny because I got turned down. The only ones that ever turned me down were contemporary artists or management. Let's just, I shouldn't even say contemporary artists, but management. 
you know, you try to get into, let's say, uh, I remember trying to get uh, Max Weinberg or, or Springsteen's people. Right. You know, they turn you away quickly. Tom Petty's people didn't know. You know, and I know these wow. people respect these musicians. Sure, have, and so, had a lot of influence. Yeah, so I maybe they I, maybe they never heard. Yeah. But you know what? And you, the best thing that happened, they turned it down. Yeah. Because it, in the end, the film's much better without that. I, I, I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me. I didn't miss that at all. No, no, at all. Right. And the other thing, when you Because, asked, here's the thing, because it, we, we know those songs, they're so, exactly. those songs are so indelible, those are kind of the, the, the obvious stars. Yeah. To see this all, we didn't, the, the, uh, the influence is obvious, because yeah. those songs were amazing, yeah. and, and. And, you know, you just bring up Pet Sounds alone. Yeah. Uh, and the number of people who have said what an influential album that is. And yeah. to know that these guys were part of that. It, it's, um, I love the stuff where they're talking about Brian Wilson because I I, right. I fully expected somebody in there to go, oh, boy, what a nut job. But no, no they they no. really saw that he... He had a vision, and he was trying to get to it, and they were yeah. they went along for the ride. Yeah, it, it must I have th- been really fun for them to be a well, little experimental. Maybe? Yeah, and I think you know, for my, it's funny because I think everybody's different. Mm-hmm. You know, for Hal, it was different for him. For my father, you know, he doesn't really care. My father had a different. You know, my father liked him because he they sounded like the high lows to him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my father didn't maybe care for the music. He liked the harmonies. He liked the harmonies. Yeah. That where he, that's where he's coming from. Yeah. Um, Interesting. But they all like. And, you know, they all had respect for him because they knew what he knew that they knew that he understood what he was doing. Or you know what I mean? It wasn't like they could easily call out a, a sham. You know, or, you know, a fake. They could easily see that, or someone that really didn't know what they were talking about. They were they were cool with it. If they were fine, if they were nice people, they you know. But if they were like jerks, then you got a problem. Yeah. But you know, but they were really cool. You know, listen. Most don't forget. Most of these people had not nearly as much knowledge as these musicians in that studio. The guys are coming in at you know they're kids. Brian's a kid, right? You know, the rock and rollers are just young kids in their teens or late twenties. Well, if anything, or early twenties. If anything, somebody like Brian sees an opportunity of these Very remarkable so. musicians who might actually be able to get this stuff that's in his head actually out on tape. You know, I've I've heard different uh, stories, and you never know who's, you know, where it goes now. Right. But I heard it was, you know, he was hanging around with the Phil Spector sessions. But Dean Torrance told me it was um, when they were playing together. This is of Jan and Dean. Jan and Dean, right? And he said they were doing a concert together, and they started hanging. And he said, you know, that's when uh, Surf City, uh, he wrote Surf City and gave it to Janet Dean, and they did it, and Brian came in, and he saw all these studio musicians, because that's what they always used. Mm-hmm. And Janet Dean used two drummers that had Earl Palmer and Hal Blainett together at once. And he said, that's when he realized, oh, these guys do this. And they said, yeah, you come in, you know, they just do your music for you, Brian. And it was Al Jardine. It's funny because, you know, uh, there's these, you know, you're always going to have, how do I put this uh, nicely? Um, <laughs> you're going to have fans that are just rabid and know, they're going to know way more than I will. And I promise you, you're out there, you know way more. And you, that's great. But the film never says, you know, what I'm saying is the film, they started coll- collaborating after the first couple albums. So I'm saying this because I got someone started going off the other day. Said, they play their own music. They did play their own music sure. at the beginning. We yeah. all know that. Right. But when it started to get more complex. Exactly. And that's what Al Jardine said. And here's where the, where the take, it takes off. When Al Jardine said, 
Brian didn't want to go on the road. Yeah. He just didn't like it. And he just wanted to write. So now he's the opportunity to write. Musicians like my father and Hal and Ray Pullman and Steve Douglas and Don Ring, they're all coming together. They're going to listen to Brian. They're, gonna, they're getting paid. They're going to listen to him. They respect Brian. It's like anything at home. You go home, you don't have respect for your family. Do you know what I mean? Right. Now, he's yeah, got his brothers and he's got his cousin. He's got his a, dad yelling, yeah, at him. yelling at him. They're not going to, you know, and that was where I think where it kind of was a, probably a big relief for him. Yeah. So he could spend hours and just, they would just listen and do what he asked. Right, right. You know, I, so, and like Dean, uh, like um, Al said, he said, that was the thing. He says, yeah, we, it would have taken us weeks to figure out what he was doing, learn it. But we had to learn it to go on the road with it, but it would have taken us weeks. Where these guys could come in and do it, you know, quickly. Yeah. So ultimately, you started to get more and more footage. You got a cut together. Well, obviously, I kept going, 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 and you know, and like I said, I just kept collecting footage. Right. In two thousand six, but came, you knew all along the biggest issue was going to be getting music. the music rights because you have well, you have to feature the music. Yes. Yeah, it, it was like I wasn't you know it's funny you yes we always knew that was why everybody said they're not going to help. Right. And the problem was well what music do you need? I don't really know until I cut it. Yeah. So I'm in a weird situation and I described it as if you had a beautiful property overlooking Malibu and you you know you got the plans, you got this property and you got the appliances all ready to go, you got your fixtures ready to go. But you can't do anything with it unless you build it. And that's what I had. I had all this great footage. You know, I had I knew the beginning, I knew the middle, I knew the end of this these careers. And so I finally, we just kept going. And Susie, my wife, was concerned we had the most expensive home movie ever. <laughs> you know, and she was right. You know, because we just kept, and that was 2000s. You remember, market was up. So we, you know, refi, you know, refi, oh, pay boy. off that, pay off it. And Kent Nelson, people... You know, I always say, well, the only ones that did help were, you know, Visa, Wells Fargo, Countrywide. They were very nice people. <laughs> <laughs> and they cut me hey, off. Here you go, money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's enough now. And oh. Then, oh, you know, mom helped us out, and we just kept doing it. And then finally we cut the film. 2008, we got into South by Southwest, and we went, oh, this is great. It's one of the great festivals. Now it's also 2008. World's upside down. Right. Um, we still have a back end. We paid for the festival use for the music, but we still have this huge back end. At that point, it what was, was the estimate for? I think what about seven hundred fifty thousand, probably close to a million, because <sighs> I knew what I had negotiated with the labels, which they had given me a good price, was probably about seven hundred fifty thousand. Didn't know what the musicians union was going to be. Didn't know how much of the stock footage and all that stuff was going to be. So it could have been a least a million yeah. what so, what do you estimate you you had spent oh probably on, about three four hundred at that point yeah so obviously the, the biggest expense my, was going to be yeah yeah all this yeah and you were not going to see that back no no and yeah. that was no one's going to ever give us our money back no. you know so you're hoping that an angel's going to come and say and i tried to say well let's standing in shadows did you know whatever they had five million right, blah, right. Blah, blah. oh well no 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 so no and no hbo no showtime no, no hbo looked at it and they said, it's really not our kind of thing. You know, there's no, you know, and it's true at that time is, yeah, you know, but... there was no, you know, if one of the musicians kills someone else, maybe, but, you know, <laughs> and there's still time for that. <laughs> like, yeah, you needed just one good tragedy. Which um, unfortunately happened, which was the Spectre thing. Yeah, that's bizarre. right. Yeah, that no happened kidding. in the middle of this. And then all of a sudden that became like, 
that music was frozen. You can't license any of that music at that point. I went, oh, no. You know, this poor woman dies, and now this is going out. And I'm trying to control people, you know, doing things in press that shouldn't be, you know, not them, but others. And I had a lot of, I wanted, to, I should have a DVD chapter and tell the truth about everything. In the end, <laughs> you won't believe it, but. You can't tell one of those stories now? No, I was just. It just, you know, it was just some heartache. But, yeah. I mean, one of the things that was, I always loved telling was the story about trying to find stock footage. And, um, you know, why would anybody bring a camera? It's like, do you bring a camera to work? No. 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 Right. It's no different for them. You know, they were recording songs. No one's in the studio most yeah. of the time. There's so, very little, other than still photos, there's, there's very, very little, little of anything shot. There's something that looks... Obviously, very staged and and weirdly shot yeah, with right, this, like which, big blinding floodlight or something. Okay, that that is exactly what I'm going to tell That's you. It's like the only footage exactly. of those guys coming into the studio. That's very funny. So I call. <laughs> God, it's such a great. Set. It's, well, it's true. It was the great. It's, well, it, because it stood it, out so yeah. obviously. And the thing is, so I call. I put an ad in the paper, in the union paper. Says, "Is anybody guys, you know, super eight footage?" Finally, Hal says to me, he "says You know, there was that one time." He says, I had an 8 millimeter camera, and uh, we had this party coming, so I took the camera to work and filmed all the guys, directed the guys, because I basically cut it into a porno. It was like probably a 1952 porno, like 8 millimeter. So I said, okay. All right. So he sends it to me, and I go, now I got this 8 millimeter can. I can't, take, I can't put it in my projector. It's too brittle. So I have no idea what's on it. So I can't take it to mom and pop place around the corner that does, you know, home movie transfers, da, da, da. So I, you know, God help me what's on it. Be arrested. So I take it to a lab. We do a late night l transfer, you know, and they did like a midnight run. And they, it was so brittle. We had to put it through the gate so slow. They put yeah. it through the gate. and yeah. So in between these hardcore, <laughs> hardcore 1952 <laughs> sex scenes come my father walking into a room and then Glenn Campbell's waving to the camera and Don Randy's, you know, doing some lip tricks. And uh, it's like, you know, then it's hardcore, hardcore. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> oh, my God. So, But finally, you got something of them. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, really, nothing of them, nothing of them playing. No. Nothing as no. a document, yeah. No, and that's a drag. But you know what? I was thrilled. And then, you know, the last about six months ago... It was only then did I find out there was footage of the v Good Vibration session that was uh, like EPK, Electronic Prescott at the time. And then I found another documentary that was done, I think in 1968, about uh, songwriters. And it featured the guys in the studio playing with the Mamas and Papas. So that came out of like, and it was Lou Adler that told me, he says, I just saw this footage of your dad. Da, da, da. I was like, what? Because no one ever saw that. You yeah. know, it was 50 years ago. Oh, wow. So that was really cool. Yeah. And there's also some great audio um, tape of, like, the Sinatra piece. Oh, that's That was, to, to me... This was the duet he was doing with yeah. Nancy. So I had basically... that The story on the... You know, I, for those... when they Before they see it, they'll see this, is that story about something stupid, the song. Um, Al Casey, the guitar player, talks about how he was on it with uh, Glenn Campbell, and they were playing it. They had this opening, and... Frank wasn't happy with it because it wasn't what he had heard because the original was from Carson Parks. And he wanted a similar he sound. He wanted a similar sound. Yeah. And then finally Al said to Glenn, who was doing it, said, listen, I did the original. He said, you do it then. 
So they did it and said, okay, that's it. So that was just the story. And then all of a sudden someone sends me that, that audio clip of Frank and you Nancy. You hear Frank directing. It's, it's like, so beautiful. And you I got goosebumps. What's interesting, you don't hear him blowing up. You just oh, kind of no, hear, no, you no. see him kind of dissatisfied. And it's, he was, he's, he's, tr- he was he's thinking about it. He was working. And I love when he, and, it's and he's teasing Nancy in the booth. He's, and she goes, Daddy. And you know what yeah, I mean? It's and it's like, it it like, oh my God. And, yeah. you know, so I showed it to Nancy. And Nancy was thrilled that I found that. And, um, and it was the greatest thing was then I had, I had to recut it. And I tried to cut it a couple times different ways. And I realized you can't cut it to picture. That's why I pulled pictures out of that. Yeah. And this is one of the things I said about, I'll tell you later, but I just put a VU meter because mm-hmm. you got to focus your viewer yeah. to listen. Yeah. Then you know what's going on. Because if you start looking at pictures, you're going to... And what I was saying earlier about going from film to video, the problem I I regret, the biggest regret I had was not seeing my father for that whole year with a camera or a cassette player or anything. Because I was too hung up on making sure it was film. You know, I don't have a film camera. I can't do it. You know, and I, again, and when I did get to him with a film camera, he was too weak. Yeah. We have an interview, but it's not, it takes it out. So. Yeah. But it was, uh, but that was a really good, that Sinatra thing is one of my favorite new little things. Did your dad appreciate you doing this? Did he? Yeah, he I think feel so. like it was, he, he th- this was saw, something? He never saw a frame. Yeah. You know, and I think it's funny because But now, he understood what you were yeah, going yeah, for, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. Because especially when I'm sitting at that round table. And things are kind of like you know it starts dying out somewhere, and he'll he knows where to bring it back. Yeah, you know. Um, oh, what I was going to tell you is, I was never going to be part of this story. You know that story of my father and, and these guys. It's always going to be the group. And what happens? We had thirty minute cut, and and a friend of mine looked at and he says, "Why did you? Why are you guys cutting it like this?" I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "Anybody in this building, we could cut this like this, and it'll be it's a history doc channel." He says, you got something you have inside that none of us have, and you're not you're not going there. And I don't want to go there, because in my head I was going to be the director. Surprise everybody later. Oh, you know he's the. You know. And he says, you're not doing it. And so I said, all right, how we? And I don't want to go on camera. And so it was like, all right, well let's just do a voiceover. And when we started doing the voiceover, all of a sudden that allowed us to go this direction or this direction or this direction. It was a huge lift off yeah, our shoulders, yeah. the editor and I, because it was about my father and his extended family, right. the Wrecking Crew. Because, and then it becomes this personal story. Absolutely. And also the fact that you started it before he passed. And mm-hmm. then and then your struggle to get it done is is kind of always there in, in the background. People yeah, who he, know it yeah. know that. But but that you were still driven to kind of tell the story. It's 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 a it's a valentine to your yeah. dad for yeah. for the things he contributed and yeah. all these amazing people around him you know i it's amazing you know one of the things um people don't realize are the these musicians are parents they have families they did everything else like every other you know family had you know they had sickness they had to put food on their they had to send their kids to school and i remember you know in the early days you couldn't get a loan if you're a musician now, my dad's making more money than the damn bank president. You know what I mean? But, but because of what he has to put on occupation yeah. on the form. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's it was looked really upon silly, as a risk. really silly stuff sometimes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so I, you know, I hope people understand musicians, all artists, if, you know, they're, they're, 
we wouldn't be here in a radio station if it wasn't for these guys. Yeah. And you know what? These guys wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the radio. Because that's the other thing. Radio in those days was huge. And that's what developed that market of the labels. When Liberty Records, they were doing an album a day for months. Why could they do it? Because they could get it to the radio station, get it on the air, and see by you know a few days if it was going to go anywhere. Right, right. That was and, the. I mean, that was not only that was the heyday of pop music, which coincided with the heyday of top forty radio. Exactly. Which basically was that whole era that you're talking about when they were playing was the first time the youth market had ever become anything. Yeah. You know, and the Beatles and the British Invasion was happening yeah. simultaneously, so it was. It shifted everything. Yeah. Pop well, culture. and I mean, culture entirely changed their point of view on stuff. Yeah. I think I was reading, where was it? Because at the radio labels, didn't they weren't sure if rock was going to sell. Right. That was one of the reasons why they weren't investing a lot of money. They weren't going to let these guys play unless it was, they, that's why they had studio musicians play. They knew they could save their money. And I think the, what was I can't remember. It was like some Broadway show. Could have been the King and I was the biggest selling album, nineteen sixty something. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Because that's what they were pushing. Right. Um, but it was the great thing about radio was also, and you've heard these stories probably, is they'd finish the radio or finish the recording session, do an acetate at the studio right as soon as they're done, and get it up to KFWB. Yeah. You know, give it to Martindale or one of the other guys, and you know, hey, check it out. We just got the Janadine, you know, and they're playing the acetate. Play it off an acetate. Yeah. Yeah. The immediacy of that. Immediacy. You would think, and it's funny because you would think it's the opposite because of the technology. Uh, oh, my God. How many lawyers do we have to go through to get yeah, this Yeah, that's on? right. You can, but you could, you know, you can email now, you yeah. know, you can send it digitally, but it takes forever because you have to go through, jump through so many hoops. Oh, Here's yeah. a guy walking with the, uh, it's still warm from the yeah. machine over to the radio station. The, the guy said sometimes they would be <laughs> driving home. And they wouldn't even be in their driveway, and they had already heard it on the radio. <laughs> Amazing. It's a crazy talk. Out of this whole thing, and congratulations, by the way, just to, to stick with this and to see it come to fruition mm-hmm. is amazing. What's, what's the thing that surprised you most in this process? Um, the support I got from strangers. Who just had a passion for, yeah. for the music. Huge, and the, yeah. huge. I mean, listen, my family stuck with me, and it it takes its toll. Yeah. You know, one of those things where I always remember um, asking those guys, you know, one of the questions was, how did it affect your personal lives? Now, you asked earlier at the beginning of the interview, my mom kept us together. Mm-hmm. Dad must have done pretty well, because I don't remember my dad being gone that often, even though that was part of his life. But mom must have kept it together. But I remember um, Plas Johnson, when I asked him that question, how did it affect your personal life? And he paused and he said, you know, he said, first of all, he said, you know, when I was doing the Merv Griffin show, my kids go to school at 8 o'clock. I go to Merv Griffin at 3 o'clock. I don't see the kids. I come home at nine thirty, ten o'clock. They're asleep. And this is what was going on for years. You know, he's working during the day. And that. He said, and he paused. He says, you know, I'm a better grandfather than I'm a father. Mm. You know, now you don't have to be a musician. You don't have to be a DJ. You don't have to be an artist. You don't. Have to, that's any one of us in America trying to make it work, right? And and it and it's the the fine line of balancing um, uh, your work and your family. You know, well, God, I got to stay because I got to make this buck, right? And that's where I've been with this for the last few years. It's been really difficult because thank God my wife's been working. You know, you know, for the last year and a half, it's been like. Danny's just, 
you know, right. Tunnel this has driven. been your thing. And yeah. it's not great mentally. I mean, it's probably, it's taken its toll, but I'm, it was the strangers, the emails you get from people that seen it or people crying at the end of a screening. Yeah. You know, I think that was some of the greatest, it sounds awful, awful, but someone coming up to you in tears because whatever happened in that movie, and I don't know, because uh, it was personal to that person. Well, it's, you know, you know how mu how impactful music yes, can be. Yes, very much and, so. And the fact that you were able, and it was it was a brilliant choice, to tie it into something that people can relate to, which is you can look back and see that your dad did something special. Yeah. And even though he did it in a very, you know... Professional a, way. A professional yeah, and, and workmanlike yeah. way. He did something remarkable, yeah. and... And you wanted to be able to tell the world about all these mm -hmm. guys and what they did. And so, you know, all that combination of some, a very human story and this music that meant something in so many people's lives and still does yeah. to this day. Absolutely. And that's the great, you know, that's the other thing which happened by accident. You know, when I say by accident, you know, you don't plan it out like this. We knew the personal story would be good. But what the impact was now is I look at our demographics. Listen, I'm not getting the 18 year olds there. No. That's okay. Some do, though, which is really cool. But. When our demographic means people have lost their parents, they're about to lose their parents, they're going to lose their parents. We're all in that boat. You know, uh, musicians are a piece of cake. You know, that's like shooting fish in a barrel. Right. I mean, they're, they're just, just eating this stuff up. Uh, anybody that knows this music, 50% of the story is already given because you know the music. So I'm really thrilled of what is happening with the movie. You know. What song do you have a renewed appreciation for after making this? Is there one that was in your head all the time? Um, there's 110 songs. I didn't get down. To, I didn't get turned down by one song. Wow. Or one label, one publisher didn't turn me down. Um, there's a couple out there that were not so nice, but <laughs> most they, were, of, they were squeezing you for everything you could get. And it was always Maybe. the ones that had only one song. It's yeah. like really. <laughs> it's like oh my god. Um, <laughs> But the song, the, you know, I would put songs in there that meant something to me. It's like, why would you pick that song? You know, like Memories from Elvis. Yeah. You know, it's so the comeback special. Well, that's my dad at the beginning. Him playing just with Elvis, you know, in Memories, you yeah. know, doing all that. And you hear his gut string. The other one that, again, people have probably never heard because it's never been released, I don't think, on a CD is uh, um, Ray Charles singing... Um, it's not easy being green. Yeah. And that's my dad again. Wow. And that's the last song of the movie. And the reason I play that again, because that was what he loved doing. That's when he loved, he was in, that was Tommy. You know, that's when he felt, I'm here for this. Mm -hmm. Anybody could play the, you know, the Bonanza theme and the Batman theme and the Green Acres theme. There, there were, you know, 10 guys ready to go on all that stuff. But no one touched him when it came to that gut string, that pretty yeah. nylon thing. And I think that was always uh, always meant a lot to me. You know, that's why I think the fifth dimension stuff is always great to me, too. And what would Tommy say if he had the chance to see this movie in its finished form? What do you uh, think he, he would he'd say? He'd be a basket case. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He would be, be inside big bowl of mush. Oh yeah, yeah. extremely. Fall I apart. mean, no, he would have. Been, my mom falls apart every time she sees yeah. it. And she sees it every every time. But I, I think he he was extremely sensitive. He looked like a bull in a china shop, but right. he was a crybaby. <laughs> he was awful, you know. Commercials and you know, Charlie Brown was oh, the great. greatest 
greatest cartoon for him ever because Charlie I think Brown. he looked like uh, he felt like Charlie Brown. Yeah, I think that's what you know. I remember there was a few times, you know, because he didn't look the part of a musician. He was a big guy, overweight. He always had to deal with that, uh, but he was. I think a lot, a lot of musicians be, that become, you know, great or artists is because they have that insecurity of other things. So they really focus their art. You know, they really want to focus something that they can be good at. Well, the whole thing is a great testament to not only his his great artistry um, and his just his path and all those guys. I mean, what they contributed, but to yours as well to yeah. to follow through on it, to get it done, and to have continue to have that relationship with your dad even after he's yeah. long gone. It's he never left. Yeah, that's the weird part about it. He'll, he'll, he'll always, always be, be around. There. It's amazing. Yeah, which scares you when you're you shouldn't be doing things. <laughs> <laughs> that's the moment <laughs> like, you're doing something he would not approve of, yeah, and one like, of his songs. Yeah, maybe I should leave it alone. <laughs> Hey, Denny, congratulations Thank on this. Thank you so man. much. People have to check this out. And I, it's, is it, uh, as, it, as it's released in L.A., yeah. is it also going on demand? And, yeah, it's and going on video on demand. It's going on iTunes. March 13th, it was interesting. When we made the deal, they said, all right, well, you know what? We'll give you five cities theatrical, you know. And it's like 75 cities now. Oh, wow. Because it's just... And I think, you know what it was? We had pushed this for so long. I met the, back to those fans. Those are the people that helped in Kickstarter. Those are the people that came out and saw the film, mm -hmm. and we just stayed in touch. Fifty thousand of them this week are on like Facebook now. We have thirty thousand. Well, I first ones. discovered it four years ago and reached out to you because I I reacted probably the same way. Once I heard about what was what it was and what it was, the, what the subject was, it was like, of course, people need to know about these guys. Of course, they do. It's why shouldn't a, an artist know about Picasso, Monet? Yeah. You know, one of the great uh, new guys, Mark Shulman, one of the great drummers. He said, "You can't." He said, "I don't care what you say." He says, "You could hate or never heard anything that Earl Palmer and Hal Blaine ever did, but you can't say you weren't influenced because whoever you liked over the last fifty years liked something that they did and right. they copied it, and right. that's how we learned." Yeah. Yeah. So beautiful stuff. Thank Congratulations, you. man. Awesome. Get a monkey. Get a monkey!